Hi everyone, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. I'm JJ Walsh in Hiroshima, Japan. And today I'm talking with my sister, Ruth Jarman. She runs her own business, Jarman International, in Tokyo. Thanks so much for joining again, Ruth. Hello, hi everybody. Now we talked almost exactly one year ago about your books and working from home and lots of advice. Has, how has this year since we last talked, how has it been? Has it felt like it's been a short time? To me, it feels long and short at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it feels like it's been in Japan, it's very much been up and down. So things started to look a little bit better and then they got bad again. And there was a little bit of relaxing of policy and then policy got strong again. So it's not like, I don't feel like we went through, I mean, going forward, we might go through a really difficult time in Japan. It depends on how things are handled right now at the moment. But um, I think that we never really got into a really, really deep pit here, but we were on the precipice, you know? So it's sort of like we're on the edge and uh, okay, we've got to be strict again. Oh, now we can relax a little, you know? So yeah, um, I, it's been an up and down. Yeah, I agree with you. It feels like it's been long, but also been short. Yeah. I can, for the people that are meeting you for the first time, mm -hmm. uh, would you like to introduce yourself and your business a little bit? Yeah, so I've been in Japan for 33 years. Um, I started in a company called Recruit, which I'm really happy about that um, Mr. Ezoi, who started that company, his books are becoming popular again. He was a huge fan of Peter Drucker. And um, for about 20 years in Recruit and another company called Space Design. And then while I was freelancing and having my little translation company, um, I was able to work really, really closely, like literally next to him, getting yelled at every day from him. <laughs> he was my ultimate mentor. Uh, he's now you know, passed and he's in heaven watching us. But uh, I feel like luckily through him, I was really able to learn the Japanese style of successful business practice. So he kind of was a huge... Uh, devotee to um, Peter Drucker and then he would sort of tweak what Peter Drucker says to fit into the Japanese societal norms right for business so um, in 2012 uh, is when I started my company Jarman International and I think one of the ways that we've been able to survive is that we basically our biggest selling point is for consulting we are trying to help businesses grow okay and then uh, our tagline is connecting, uh, bridging international curiosity with Japanese content. So international to me includes all the people living in Japan who are not, not Japanese, as well as people living outside of Japan. So what we're trying to do is help different companies and different regions in Japan um, create new income from the new growing market of non-Japanese uh, prospective clients. So luckily we have uh, myself and then our other team that's really good at interacting with the Japanese side and, and managing expectations because that's really important, right? Managing expectations. And then we have the other side where we can bridge um, people's confusion about Japan and 
how to really enjoy all this wonderful content here in Japan without feeling like you're doing a major faux pas or, you know, breaking some manner rule or something like that. So uh, that's in a nutshell what we do. Hi, thanks for joining today. I hope you enjoy this episode. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, check out inboundambassador.com. And you can also find me on buymeacoffee.com slash JJ Walsh to get some bonus information and insights from the series. Awesome. Uh, also, I, I was looking at your YouTube channel. I really like your kind of philosophy uh, getting through COVID. You have this great video called In This Moment, kind of yeah. mindfulness. Can you just give us a a bit of information from that concept, that philosophy? Well, that was a really special day. And uh, one of my pastimes is journaling. So I really like to write in my journal. And I try to think about how we, how we can, you know, think about this experience that we're going through right now, right? So one of the biggest points of this experience is the entire world is experiencing it together. So let's say you're worried about climate change, all right? With climate change, you have people who are very concerned about it and then a whole other group of people who just don't even think about it. Whereas with coronavirus, with COVID-19, every single individual pretty much around the entire world was worried about it on a personal basis, pretty much. So I feel that there's a really deep meaning in that, that all of us are experiencing personally something that can involve fear, something that can um, create a, a str stronger feeling of looking forward to something, hoping about something. Um, it's kind of like if we were all being put into uh, the flame, you know, to figure out who we really are. And when you look at the coronavirus and you see that people can suddenly, suddenly get really serious and, you know, pass away. So I've had people close to me, you know, their parents suddenly like they were fine. And then two days later, they pass away in the hospital. And so I feel like even more, we've always been told that with climate change, with all the different things going on in the world, you know, you always have to think that this moment, how am I living this moment? And if you really think about it, besides coronavirus, besides everything else, let's say oxygen stopped in the world, right? Like in the atmosphere, there was no oxygen. Basically, we can live five minutes. That's all we can live. So we're pretty much always five minutes away from our demise. It sounds like a really negative thing to think about. But um, when, the, when these kind of things happen, I hope I'm still, you can still hear me. I can, still, I can still hear you. Okay, yeah, okay. Go ahead. like it took a break. So yeah. we, you know, it's sort of forcing us to realize how temporal everything is, and how every single moment is so important, and how every person around us is so important. And I, I don't know. I think that's what I sort of talked about in that video. Was there anything you noticed that you wanted to ask? Um, yeah, it was about working from home, uh, kind of showing showing your new reality, trying to find uh, limitations on work time. Working from home offers more flexibility, but when do you turn it off 
is is kind of a challenge. How how were you able to do work life balance with mostly working from home over this year? Uh, you, it looks like you've gone back to doing some programs with NHK. Is that right? Oh no, that was always going on. Um, oh, the one that you're seeing right there—that's this uh, regular. It's on a public TV show. It's called Sekai de Ichimau Ketai Jugyo, and it's about. Okay, so there's two points. One is the one um, easy Japanese for work. Uh, the NHK show is continuing. So that's been going on for almost two years. So we're at like 50 episodes and that's on NHK World and it's for uh, people that are learning Japanese hoping to come to work in Japan. So that's one show. And then this one was really interesting because um, now that we're sort of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel of this COVID thing, um, I, I would actually also like to talk a little bit about in, inbound tourism. So I feel like... Um, there's a lot of, you know, worry about the future, right? Everybody. And um, one of the things I think that, especially as we get closer to the Olympics and everybody's really nervous about these Olympics, like what is going to happen? Should we have it? Should we not have it? And there's a, uh, there's a point about confidence there. And so one of my books, uh, my first book and then the second book, and then it got combined into one book, two things about 39 things that Japanese people can be proud of um, talks about, you know, cleanliness and, you know, really specific stuff. Cause I've lived here so long and I, I can, so it's two Japanese people in J Japanese about, you know, things that they can be proud of from somebody who's from the inside looking in from the outside kind of thing. <laughs> like I've been inside so long, but I'm still sort of outside also talking to, you know, other internationals all the time. So uh, the show picked that up and they're like something that Japanese people really need right now is confidence and uh, ability to hope and think about what does Japan have to offer to the rest of the world. And, you know, when they took a, I, I don't remember who it was, but some big um, organization took a survey of 6,000 people around the world. And it was sort of like when COVID is done, where's the first country you want to visit? And Japan was like, hands down, number one. Everybody wants to come to Japan. <laughs> so that's good. And then the other one was, which country would you like to live in? And the number one country was Canada. But the Canadians, for their number one country where they want to live, they chose Japan. So Canada was number one and Japan was number two. So I'm expecting that as we get out of this COVID thing, um, and you know the U.S. is having, so it used to be sort of like the U.S. is the leader of the democratic side and everybody kind of like works with them. Uh, but then we had four years of like total uh, disorganization. And now I feel like it's a chance for Japan to really step up and become like a partner on equal footing with the US. And then so how to move forward. And so if people around the world are thinking and looking at Japan as a place to visit or a place to live, how do we make this place more welcoming and i think that one of the ways to make it more welcoming is to have japanese people be much more confident in what they have to offer to the world it's hard for you to imagine but a lot of japanese people are like why did you, why do guy jeans why do internationals like japan so much i don't understand why you know yeah 
Um, let's let's talk about your your book that you, recently you've had a bit more buzz and in in bookshops you showed how it was right next oh, to yeah. Michelle Michelle and Barack. I'm so happy about that! I was so I didn't take this picture. Somebody else took this picture, and I'm like, whoa! I am on the same show. I am never taking this photo down ever. So I'm on the same shelf as Michelle Obama and Barack Obama. Ha! Oh, like two of my superheroes, you know. Uh, Do you want to just describe what this book is about? Yes. Yeah, so this is the book I was talking about, about 39 things that Japanese people can be confident of. And, um, you know, so what does Japan have to offer to the world? Like a little bit of hint into why people love Japan so much. Why do internationals like Japan so much? And, you know, I talk about really specific things like, so I start with a small thing, like you don't hear horns very much in Japan, right? You don't hear people honking their horns, even in a huge city like Tokyo. Why? So I talk about uh, one of the reasons is because Japanese people are so focused on the other person that before, so they have an ability that they've uh, been raised up to do. And I'm not saying that no one else in the world does this. I'm just saying the in Japan, it's the majority of people that do this. Whereas in other countries, it might be a smaller minority that do it. But um, so in Japan, the general thing, there is no written rule or anything. But the general thing is that if you're uh, maybe not, it that might not apply to Hiroshima because I've heard Hiroshima is pretty wild drivers. But um, in Tokyo, at least somebody before they hit that horn would take a little bit more time thinking about how that is going to affect everyone around them. Whereas me in Hawaii, if I feel like whether it's a good reason or a bad reason, I'm going to blow my horn. It's like, boom, just like not thinking. So in Japan, it's more, there's a 10 second longer thinking moment. And I think that applies to everything. So somebody who's driving a car and they notice the car in front of them, the light has turned green and but haven't moved yet. I would probably wait one, two, three, beep, beep, like that. Whereas in Japan, basically they'll wait 10, 20 seconds or maybe 10 seconds. And they're thinking if I beep, maybe it's an elderly person driving the car. I don't want to surprise them. Maybe somebody on the sidewalk would get surprised. Oh, probably the person in front as the other cars next to us start to move, they'll notice and they will move. So the, that's, leads into the reason why Tokyo is such a quiet city, okay? So it's that's basically what the book is. It's 39 things that starts with a small example of what I've noticed and then my hypothesis of why that is ending up in a conclusion of that's why uh, internationals love Japan and they always talk about how quiet Tokyo is. How can you have such a huge city and it be so quiet, you know? And that's one of the things that internationals like about Japan. Does that make sense? So that's basically what the book is about. Yeah, it's awesome. Uh, and let's talk about your more recent book, which I think came out after we had our last talk, uh, One, Two, Three, Tourism. Yeah, this is a really, really important topic for me right now. So um, the other day, so somebody that I really respect in the inbound tourism industry in Japan, his name is Murayama-san. He's the president of um, Yamato Gokoro, which is a company I work with a lot. And he is sort of on the front lines of inbound tourism, meaning international tourism to Japan. And so he was announcing on the Facebook page, not himself, but the, the uh, I guess the organizer of the event, 
was announcing that they're going to do this inbound seminar about how inbound tourism is going to be, what is the strategy you need to think about going forward after COVID, okay? Now, I was looking at the comments on that post, and there were a lot of comments from Japanese people saying, what? We're still talking about inbound? No, no, we don't want that anymore. We don't want to have a million buses showing up to downtown Osaka and having all these tourists get off and eat something and get back on and go home, you know? So I feel like, Joy, I mean, you know, we, us growing up in Hawaii, you know, we were there. And even now you have the buses going around to the North Shore. And I think it's better now. It's much more um, balanced, I think, now. Like you'll have buses go to Polynesian Cultural Center or something like that. But um, I feel like the Japanese mindset towards international tourists, um, especially with all the um, discussion going on around the Olympics, like, you, I mean, you have people saying, no, I don't want to have it. No, thank you. No, no. Right. So there's this Japanese people already. It, it's good. They err on the side of conservatism. So they're being very conservative and going forward with the inbound tourism activity from 2012 was kind of a break from tradition for Japan. It was a risk, risk taking to bring all these people you don't know into your country. Right. And I feel like now there's a little bit of pushback towards, okay, let's go back to exactly how it was. No, let's not. So I would really like to be, so my, basically my book is one, two, three, like divide internationals into three categories. One is brand new tourists who have never come to Japan before, who have no Japanese capability. Two are people that have been here for two or three years who have some Japanese capability. And three would be people like me and Joy who've been here forever and know the rule about tattoos in onsen and stuff like that. So I feel like for the next several years, um, there's going to be a real focus on the level three and the level two people. And that's really my forte. That's what we're best at. And that's one reason why we were, we were able to survive over this difficult year. So I, I really want to somehow be involved in this rethinking of the tourism strategy for Japan. Long, long comment, but that's what I'm feeling at the moment. No, that's awesome. And in terms of sustainable tourism, that is the best way forward. And right. exactly what you said, going back to the status quo, uh, no, that wasn't good at that time. And it's definitely not what we want to do right now. We, we want to go forward with, like you said, uh, people who are twos or threes who've maybe been to Japan before. They're invested. They're looking for more meaningful experiences. Right. They want to stay longer in different areas, maybe outside big cities as well, um, to really engage with locals and to appreciate local culture. They're not the kind of tourist who just wants to come around and get a few quick shots and back on the Shinkansen. So these these are the customers we want to appeal to, right? Right. So it's like there's a very fine balance because a lot of these places that had been accepting all the different kind of tourists are really hurting now. So all of us kind of have to step up and say, okay, wait, wait, let's, let's stop here a moment and think. We know that everybody's having a, a hard time at the moment, but let's think about instead of a one night stay, how do we get the same person to stay four nights? And then that would cover um, four different people, right? It's actually more efficient to have somebody stay for a longer period. 
So what do you have to do at a ryokan? One of the things you need to do at a ryokan is not have the gorgeous meal every single day because it's too much for a lot of the visitors. So we would try to offer different kind of options for food. You don't have to change the price because it's already cheap. <laughs> so you that there's a whole mindset change that has to occur. And can I say one more thing? Because it's, it's pretty interesting. And I want everybody, I hope everyone will... Um, be able to have this sink in because this is something I've realized recently and I'm really sort of on the front lines of this stuff. So I hope it helps. But um, if you can imagine up until 2012, Japan was basically focused on the domestic market. So everything that they were doing was for other Japanese people, basically level three, you know, hundred, right. That already know everything and speak perfect Japanese. So there was this entire focus on the domestic market. And it was only around 2012 that they really started thinking, oh, wait a minute, there's this other group of people, right? What I have figured out finally after, you know, almost 10 years of doing this job is that most companies in Japan are still in the mindset of doing the same thing they did for the domestic market to the internationals. Whereas, no, it's a completely different approach. So doing a commercial on MSNBC in English is not going to get you a whole bunch of level ones to your hotel because no one overseas is watching the Japanese MSNBC. So there's a lot of smart marketing firms that are telling the Japanese customers, Oh, you know, just like you did with the Japanese uh, domestic market, just put a commercial on like an English channel on on TV in Japan. And then you'll get all these people coming and signing up for your service and whatever. No, the whole strategy is absolutely different. Plus, one more thing everybody needs to know is that the international market in Japan, the ones living here is actually super limited. There's only 2.8 million people living in Japan who are international, who are not Japanese. So if you mess up with one of them, the word of mouth can go around quite quickly. So that's another thing I've noticed that Japanese companies really have to get their mind around. Definitely. And uh, it, it's the same as, as you were saying when I did uh, destination consulting at the end of last year. Um, uh, everybody in tourism right now is kind of on hold or mm -hmm. doing online stuff. But I had the chance to go to Matsue in Shimane and give some advice to local businesses. And they, they were trying to think about how they wanted to appeal to international tourists going forward post-COVID. It's so kind of a long-term approach, which is yeah. great to plan ahead. What did you um, tell them? But uh, when I was giving some advice about sustainable tourism, oh, now is the time during coronavirus when you guys should be reaching out online through social media to other people who are promoting the kinds of things that you are doing. So, for example, there was a potter and I said, you should be connecting with people on social media, making comments on their pages about pottery in Japan. There's a lot, you know, this could be a great networking building time. And he was really excited about it. And then the next meeting when I went, he was like, did you see my page? You know, um, but that that was such a hard sell to most of the typical traditional uh, business as usual kind of we're going to aim at only the domestic market 
type of managers in the room who were doing small businesses aimed at tourism. Um, so it was nice that I felt like, well, at least one of them was kind of listening and hopefully he'll have more domestic visitors because he was reaching out on Instagram. He was reaching out on Facebook and a lot of people within Japan might be more willing to visit his pottery shop um, now that he's introduced himself that way, but also connected with others. Exactly. You know? I, I think that for the longest time, we've talked about Japanese people as being risk averse, like don't like risk. I would actually put myself out there and say there's a fear factor uh, because in Japan, a complaint is like in the US, we think of a complaint as an opportunity to improve and thank you so much for what you said. And But you know that in Japan, when anybody puts in a complaint, it's just constantly, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. So first of all, Japanese people rarely will put in complaints because they understand how heavy those are. So when they do a complaint, it's like serious, like they're really mad about something. And then the people that receive the complaints when they hear a complaint, it's actually called a claim in Japanese, kureme. So the uh, a complaint or a question from a customer is considered a claim. And for Japanese um, organizations thinking about using social media, they're so afraid of any kind of negative comment that's gonna happen or anything that's negative, they don't want to happen, right? So I find that a lot of the, the consulting is sort of based on incremental, you know, confidence building about, okay, let's only talk about something that we can have confidence about. Don't just say, oh, we can handle English because what if you make a mistake in English, then somebody's gonna do a complaint, right? So let's figure out what is the actual thing that you can say, no, this is, we do this 100% well, so you can have confidence. So even if somebody asks a question, you know that it's just an opportunity to improve what you're already doing. So that I, I think that everyone needs to understand that it's actually, there's like in, an emotional fundamental point to this, that people in Japan are af afraid, not that they're not courageous or something, but there's a fear factor of, angry customers so one of our biggest goals is to figure out how do you keep customers from getting upset or angry yeah and one of the one of the key points is of course listening to them yes and being flexible about how you relate to different customers on a case-by-case -case level which is very hard um i had a great experience the other day i just popped into a hotel which was right next to a beautiful japanese garden that I was visiting and I, I just thought, oh, it'd be nice to see what this hotel is like. I went and had a coffee in the lobby and I was chatting with the staff saying, oh, do you guys have a view of the garden? Cause it's so beautiful today. And they're like, ah, oh, no, unfortunately none of our rooms have any view. And I was like, oh, that's too bad. And then I went and sat down and the manager obviously thought about this interchange and he brought over a picture of the view from the rooms and he said, oh, this is actually what the view from the top floor looks like. It's not a bad view. And it was of the mountains and stuff. And I was like, no, that's great. But he went that extra mile, even though I wasn't a hotel customer. Yeah. I'm a potential customer. Exactly. And, and I'm a potential promoter by word of mouth to people that I know. So I thought that was very flexible of him.
to think in that way yeah, and to reestablish communication with me that might lead to business in the future. And that was a great example, I thought. Yeah. Well, I have a really good idea that I'm trying to approach the convention bureaus about because every area in Japan has a convention bureau. And I'm thinking that we are not going to have mass cruises anymore as much as before like you're not going to have cruises where you have a whole bunch of people that don't know each other on the cruise i have a feeling that big companies will just rent an entire cruise ship and put their company people on there as sort of a like a getaway um activity so like i was thinking, team building yeah, yeah like team building so i was thinking the the all these places in japan have prepared their ports to receive these big cruise ships so instead of thinking you know the normal way of conventions are people who come and use our convention buildings in our city. You could think of conventions as started trying to attract ships that are conventions themselves. So the sh ships would come to the port and they could come to the town and they could uh, explore around and stuff. But the convention is actually happening on the ship. I just thought that that like that would be a new way to approach because you have all these cruise ships that need to be used. You have all these workers that need to work. You have a lot of uh, companies that will be more careful about risk in terms of um, any kind of virus or whatever. So to have a controlled environment like a ship where they can all do their, you know, three day, I don't know, convention where they used to do it on Maui at a big hotel. Now they could do it on a ship. I, I think that's a really interesting prospect. I mean, that, that's that's to me how things hopefully will change going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of things that should be done with cruise ships in terms of environmental sustainability. Mm. They use a lot of water, they create a lot of waste, there's a lot of food waste, but uh, like any business, there's always ways to improve. I had a great uh, conversation with a woman who's one of the administrators on Peace Boat. And yeah. Peace Boat uses cruise ships and they do a lot of training on board and they go to uh, places in need of training or in need of connection around the world. And they're very connected to SDGs and they're doing great work using a cruise ship kind of model. And one of their main targets for the next five years is to make it more sustainable in terms of less damaging to the environment as well. But they're doing so much great work for social impact. Yeah. And I think if you're talking about creating team building, that makes a lot of sense to use those boats in that way. And I mean, you know, up until now, the Japanese government and different regions have invested so much money in organizing their ports to receive these ships. So what you so one aspect of sustainability is instead of now spending a whole bunch of money to build like a conference center in the middle of your town, why don't you just not do that and use these ships that already exist? Because if we don't use the ships, you know, what are you going to do? Like park them somewhere and just let them rust? You know, they, they, they're unfortunately they're already made. So we can try to, and if they have more income, then they can also be more, um, responsible in terms of SDGs. So I feel like figuring out how to use what we already have so that nobody builds anything more. And then also if the economy gets better, people have the wherewithal to start to think of SDGs a little bit more. Yeah. 
And it's easy, you know, you already have the existing structure of a building. You already have the existing yeah. structure of a, of a boat. Um, it's not hard to add solar panels, to have water catchment systems, to clean the water so it doesn't pollute the ocean. There are retrofit things that you can do. Uh, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about golf. <laughs> you're gonna get me started because you you, started. you have your own golf tournament and a big news in America with the first Japanese champion, right? Do you want yep. to talk about that? Well, uh, so Matsuya Mahideki, I think the the wonderful story about him is that he just kept trying and trying and trying and trying. I think he was in the Masters for what is it, six or seven times. Um, and I mean, anybody on this channel who plays golf understands that it's a game of focus, you know, and it's really a game against yourself and how strong you are in terms of your ability to focus and ability to not give up and ability to move on and handle um, challenges that come up. Uh, so, yeah, I think Japan was so proud of him that he he stuck it out to the end and he he did it. He He got to the top level so he joins um what's his name uh shohei san who's the famous baseball player in the angels uh, no the one now from tohoku oh my gosh i can't believe it nice fry nice fry uh, somebody uh, tell us in the comments yeah somebody <laughs> must know please tell us in the comments uh, but right now yeah, you've you've also got your own golf tournament for your company. Tell us about that a little bit. Ah, sorry, Otani, Otani Senshu, Otani San, Otani. Okay. Um, yeah. So somebody probably wrote it right now. Sayaka San, ah. thank you, Otani San. Otani San, Otani San is just rocking it. Uh, the Japanese athletes are just rocking it overseas. I'm so proud of them. So what we did is we figured golf is kind of a COVID-friendly sport. Okay, because you're pretty much social distanced, you're outside, as long as you're masked up inside the clubhouse. Um, it's and you're playing with people, you know, uh, so golf in the US is also taking off and golf in Japan is also taking off. So we had already done a monthly golf tournament, um, the German International Charity Cup. And because we receive a little bit of money from this golf course in Tochigi, we were we're basically in the red. But I, I really feel like this is good investment for the future. So we give 100,000 yen to Mirai no Mori, which is um, for neglected children in Japan. And they take them on these trips in the summer to teach them English and stuff. So that's our charity we support through this charity cup. And then um, we would have like a day every month where people come together and we have a regular competition so when COVID happened what do you do right you can't gather in groups and we would always have like the awards ceremony and stuff afterwards right um so what we decided to do is make it a virtual charity cup so you can go anytime during the month to play at eastwood country club in tochigi you give us your scorecard and then we submit it into the score at the end of the month. And then the winner gets 100,000 yen and a trophy, in, like 100,000 yen cash and a trophy. And we have like a little tiny, you know, lunch celebration with them. And we take photos for the Facebook and all that. But um, basically, we totally made it virtual. And we're going to stick with that because 
where we were getting maybe 14, 12 or 14 people each month, and then maybe a few people the rest of the month, but that wasn't part of the charity cup. Now this month for the first time, we're gonna get over 50 people participating in this. So somebody takes their colleague or somebody takes their customer and everybody can participate in the cup by giving us their scores. And so we now have a list of over 100 people that we send every month about, you know, are you going to participate this month? And so the virtual charity cup will continue because that was a really smart way to do it. It's very efficient. And um, I think it was a good response to COVID. Yeah, that's that's a really flexible and very efficient way to do it. So you can't get everybody to join one day when you have an event, but you just offer it anytime they go to the same club, right? The same course. That's very smart. And you lateral thinking. You realize money talks, man. Because at first everybody's like, you know, oh, hundred that you know, you think hundred thousand yen, you know, prize, right? In your head. And you're like, oh. But then you actually call the winner and you say, dude, you won. And now we're going to have a celebration lunch for you. And you give him, like you see the picture of Kieran, you give him an envelope with the little Japanese, you know, omerito <laughs> envelope. And there is 10, 10,000 yen bills in there, hot cash money straight to you. That's where it started taking off because people are like, oh my gosh, this is really true. And then they tell all their friends and it's like, if we're going to go play golf, why not go to Eastwood? Because we could be in that the virtual cup and nobody knows who's going to win because it's this thing called new Peria um, scoring system. So there's hidden handicaps on the, on the different holes. So even if you, you play at about a hundred, um, you could still win. If some, even if somebody gets around 80, you could still win. So it's really fun. <laughs> That's great. Good job. Um, yeah. So if you like golf, check out JarmanInternational.com. Yeah, and, please join uh, us. You can, you can find out more information about this golf tournament. Uh, one of the things I, I want to talk about as well, you were on the Japanese government uh, commercial for Tokyo. Yeah. Talking about Tokyo is a great place for international companies. You want to talk about that a little bit? Um, there were two. So one is about all the help I received to set up my company. My actual head office is set up in Kanagawa, but I have my actual office where I go in Tokyo. So I still consider myself sort of Tokyo based. Um, I was talking about like all the support they have for people who want to set up companies. So I encourage everyone to set up a KK. Everybody should. It's not hard and it's not expensive. It's just paperwork you have to deal with. But if you're going to do a company, don't do Kojin Jigyo Nushi for more than two years. Set up a KK. You can do it. It's not hard. Um, and Tokyo has a lot of support for that. So they've got this center and all that. And then the second show that I was on a, was about how it's Tokyo makes it easy to raise kids. So I feel like, you know, there's lots of complaints about um, work-life balance and stuff in Japan. But I also think there's other advantages that nobody notices, for instance. Um, in Tokyo, basically, well, when I lived in Boston, there was this rule of after dark, a woman should not be walking by herself on the street. Okay. And I think that that was really, that was a true statement that it, it, there is danger there. Whereas in, in Japan, like in a big city like Tokyo or whatever. Yeah. I think fundamentally the, the understanding is that you shouldn't really walk outside by yourself, but 
the level of danger is completely different. So let's say if I wanted to work until late at night with my men, male colleagues, like I decided that I'm just going to go for it with my career and I'm going to do the full on, you know, career. Um, in that sense, the Tokyo is actually a great place to work because it's not like there's any special danger for women. It's basically that playing field is flat. And the other thing that I talked about, I didn't talk about that in the video, but the other one was that, um, you know, it's up to each parent, but pretty much you could let your child go on the train in Japan. And I never had a problem. Like they could ride a train by themselves and it was perfectly safe and fine. And there isn't really a concept here of don't talk to strangers and you got to watch out because somebody's going to be after you or something like that. So um, those were the two videos, support for starting a company and then support for raising kids in Japan. Yeah. And safety is such an important issue, um, especially lack of guns uh, in Japan and lack of gun violence. I think a lot of people were commenting on that over this last year, how and even during coronavirus. Like yeah. there's not really a big drug problem here either. Right. Yeah. Uh, thanks for joining Brett and Veda from HAPS as well as Sayaka from uh, Facebook. If you guys have any questions or comments, please make sure to add. We're talking about international Hello. business in Japan yeah. today. Yeah. Angeles. Hey, Veda. Uh, yes, I'm in Hiroshima and my sister runs her own business in Tokyo. So we're talking about the benefits of working and living in Japan right now. Uh, one of the things you uh, highlighted a YouTube series about safety and and even your wallet, finding your wallet. You want to talk about that? That's a great story. Finding my wallet. No, he. It's a YouTuber who. Oh, on the show that I was wallet. on. Yeah. No. Um, oh, okay. Okay. So I was on this. Uh, actually, sixteen million people watch that show, and I'm going to be on it again on June twelfth. So everybody watch June 12th. It's called Sekai de Ichiman Uketai Jugyo, the best class in the world or something like that. Um, I think you can see it on YouTube for free for two weeks after. Anyway, so one of the videos they showed was there was this famous YouTuber from the US who came to Japan who did an experiment of um, dropping his wallet, like walking around randomly in Japan, purposely dropping his wallet and how many times Japanese people would pick up the wallet and come and try to give it back to him or like just testing the safety of Japan. <laughs> and they asked the people in the studio, so how many times do you think? And one of the ones is like, I don't know, 40 out of 50 or whatever. Turns out 50 out of 50 times. Uh, you see him dropping his wallet and like anyone, young kids, grandmas, everybody picks up that wallet. They're like, And so that was talking about safety. And then the added comment that I made was um, after the great tsunami in Tohoku, uh, supposedly it's like hundreds of millions of dollars because people, the grandmas and grandpas in Japan do a lot of their savings in their house inside their um, safe. So after, I'm sure you guys have seen the pictures of everything just getting destroyed. So when they were cleaning it up, a lot of these safes and a lot of this cash was found. And it was like hundreds of millions of dollars that people found and returned to the police department. So um, safety and this sense of, you know, thinking about the other and community is uh, 
really strong in Japan is such an understatement. I don't even really know. You can only talk about examples of things that happen. And it's like living, I guess, Joy and I remember in Hawaii, you know, when we were little, kind of like wasn't absolutely necessary that you locked the doors and stuff in the 60s and 70s. So um, it's kind of like that. Yeah. It's it's amazing to me um, after being in Japan for so long that this has this has retained this sense of safety walking around um, on your own as a kid or as a woman uh, getting your stuff back. This is this is something that has lasted undamaged over time, even though society in Japan has changed. Well, um, I have a funny story because there's a guy from Los Angeles. So I did interpreting for Joe Montana the famous quarterback. And that was, I don't know, probably about 25 years ago. And this is actually in my book. So he, uh, we were driving around Tokyo in the taxi and he was sitting next to me. He was noticing, uh, like you said, nothing has changed. He was noticing all the liquor stores that have all the whiskey and everything out front and no camera, nobody watching it. It's all outside the front of the store. And he was saying, dude, if that happened in L.A., it would be gone so fast, you know. And even now you can drive down the streets of Tokyo and you can see all these shops with their items out front on the sidewalk just there. Nobody's and, watching. And nobody not, not only that, don't you love honesty shops? Like in front of a farm in the middle of nowhere, you'll have a beautiful display of fresh veggies and you just put your coin in the box and it's all honesty. There is no staff there. This is amazing. I love this about Japan. It's kind of like, so in the US we have on the corners, we have the book things like a book uh, uh, cabinet of books. And it's sort of like take your book and put your book in here, like book share, which is free. So I think in the US we have stuff like that that's free. Whereas like Joy is saying in Japan, if you go out to the rural areas, there'll be like a little kiosk set up next to the road. And it's got all this fresh vegetables that the grandma's just picked that morning. And it'll have a little box, open box that says put in a hundred yen or put in, you know, whatever you think is worth what it's worth. And people put in the hundred yen and that hundred yen, all these hundred yen box stays there until night when the grandma comes and picks it up. It's a, just a different world, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, one comment from Brett, which I think is worth touching on again. We talked about this last time as well. Um, but I think since we had our conversation, uh, we've had the Morty scandal. <gasps> we've had a lot of gender inequality scandals come up. So Brett says, I've heard sexism is still a big problem in Japan for women. It is that not true in the workplace? I think it's definitely still a struggle. Darn it, I wish I could show you the photo of me. I sit on the board of a company called Fuji Bowl Holdings, and I just asked for the picture. Every year they take a picture of all the people on the board, and um, we're all standing there. And literally, you will remember Sesame Street song that goes, one of these things is not like the other. Do you remember that song? Yeah. I'm the only female, I'm the only international, and everybody else is like a Morisan, like all of them. That's how it looks. Everybody's in suits and whatever. Um, kudos to them for hiring me, first of all. So first of all, any kind of step forward, totally grateful for. So Mori-san said things that you're not supposed to say. He's out. And now you have Seiko Hashimoto in his place. And that lady is, she's 
rocking it right now. And I heard it. See, so that's also on my YouTube video. So if you want to look at my YouTube channel, it's a very small channel, but I do give a little updates on things I learn in Japan every once in a while. So I talked about Seiko Hashimoto and what she was talking about and so proud of her for stepping up and taking this uh, responsibility. And then you also have Koike-san, who's the governor of Tokyo, who's been handling things all through the pandemic. And I think that slowly, to answer your question, more female role models are coming out. So that gives the, the women who are lower down, I guess, on the totem pole, uh, somebody to look to and think, oh, I can do that. And then the other thing that I, it's a little bit controversial, but the way that I try to think about it is for the last 50 years, ever since the end of the war, it's pretty much been the men in charge. Okay. So the men in charge have their way of doing it. I actually wrote a book about this for Japan. The men in charge have a way of doing it. I'm grateful to a lot of the men who have opened doors for me to do all these interesting things in Japan. And I, I totally appreciate it. And what I notice when I'm sitting on that Fujibo Holdings board is I finally understand that most of these men in Japan who let's say are older than 50, who are really holding all the power right now, including Mori-san, the only point of reference for them, I am not giving them an excuse, but I'm trying to understand this. The only point of reference for them in terms of somebody like me, is their wife or somebody who works on their team in the company who might be a new hire or like way younger than them. Most of the men who are over 50 in Japan have never interacted with a female peer before. So the only point of reference they have is their wife or their daughter or their person that works under them. Okay. So they will say things that would normally be perfectly fine when you're in the group of all the grandpas at the table. But now that there's a woman who's a career woman, who's, who's demanding respect and who considers you her peer. Okay. Did you get that? I consider them my peer, not just them doing a favor to me that I'm their peer. I am also considering them their, my peer and I act like that. So this is an entirely new experience for them. And I feel like there is going to be some, you know, difficulties in the transition, but um, it's really happening. I sit on the board of two uh, listed companies on the Japanese stock exchange. Um, the other company I'm sitting on is Kadokawa, which is a big uh, game company and um, that book company publisher. They just moved up. Uh, a young, I guess she's like 35 or so, uh, lady from China who has an MBA from Boston University. She's now on their board. I'm the outside director and she's actually on the real board. So I see progress happening. Maybe it's not as visible, but I definitely think it's on the minds of everyone. And Joy is much more, she knows more about this than I do, but there's a lot of pressure from the rest of the world, especially investors about diversity and inclusion and SDGs. So a lot of these companies are getting letters on a daily basis from foreign investors about what are you going to do about that? And what are you going to do about that? And what are you going to do about that? <laughs> and so the other day, uh, one of my colleagues at one of these big companies came up to me and he's like, Oh, Ruth, you know, so what was DNI again? He said to me, right? I was so honored that he felt comfortable enough to ask me that 
as opposed to if he asked me that, I'm going to yell at him or something, right? He came up to me and he said, hey, Ruthie, what is D&I again, you know? And I felt like if we can create that kind of environment where people can open up and ask questions and not feel like they're scared, you know, um, I think change will happen. Yeah, I I really think, and I think you touched on this in, in your story just now, uh, we need representation. And I don't see representation happening unless we have quotas, which are actually stuck to. And I know years ago, the quota was all the tops of companies, we would have 20% women, all the tops of government, we would have 20% women, and it just didn't happen. So unless you have quotas with teeth, uh, that actually has compliance for getting, you know, and I heard stories about this from Sweden, people in Sweden, everybody uses Sweden as the example. They have 50% representation, men and women in government. And women from Sweden talk about the hurdles when they first started doing that. It wasn't easy. And everybody had the same excuses. Oh, you're not going to find people qualified. But they knew they wanted to stick to that. And they found people who were qualified. And now it seems normal and standard. And and they're represented. So in the room, they have half men, half women. You have a lot less likely um, to have that atmosphere of uh, conversations you might have when it's all men in the room, right? In so, my... In my book, um, I also talk about we have to create an environment in Japan where a Japanese woman would want to be a director of a division in Japan. So you can have all the quotas you want, but if uh, women don't want to do it. <laughs> and I, honestly, when you look at the type of uh, work style that uh, Japanese companies have a lot, I don't want to do it. Let them do it. They can do it. I don't want to even be involved. In, I don't want to do the nomikai every night. No, thank you. I want to have kids. I want to have my own private time, right? So I feel like in order to even reach a quota or something, you have to create an environment where from the get-go, when a woman joins your company, she feels like, I can get married. I can have kids. I can still move up in this company. I can enjoy my life and be a leader. And I think that COVID has given us a huge opportunity to do that, where it's kind of like flattened the playing field. So you can work from home, you can work in the office. And um, it, to me, it's much more of, it's not whether somebody is qualified or not. It's no, a lot of women in Japan are not even raising their hand when there's an opportunity because they see what the work style is. And they're like, oh, no, thank you. I'll just, you know, I'll take my kid to uh, swimming lessons because I'd much rather do that, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like, how do we make it fun and exciting for somebody to like move up in the company so they don't feel like there's all this responsibility and they have to work until 12 at night, you know? Yeah, absolutely. We need a leader, whether it's in business leader or government leader, who's pregnant, who's raising a family, who's having work-life balance. Uh, Louise Poppy from New Zealand has joined. Of course, the New Zealand prime minister. She's a great role model. Jacinda, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. she's actually a role model. And I also think that um, Angela Merkel, as well as um, people like Michelle Obama, um, uh, Kamala Harris, you know, even though they might be in different countries, they are huge um, 
empowering people and inspiring people for Japan. So it's not just the women that are looking at them, it's the other men looking at them. And the men are seeing, oh, it is possible. Women are really good at multitasking. So why don't we, you know, look for the strengths in the women in our company and make sure that we have hybrid, you know, office yes. situations. And and like you said, now that we have more uh, female leaders in business and in government who are coming over and doing business with male leaders in Japan, they're dealing with them as peers, which is changing the game as well. Yeah, right? It's really interesting transition deal because no men have ever had women peers before so if you watch the interviews with koike governor koike and all the men around her you know at the beginning it's sort of like do we ask her a question is she going to get threatened if we ask her a question what should we do you know like treating her like a delicate you know thing but then once it starts going you start to it's the same with diversity right you you don't notice the difference anymore because she's just rocking it as a leader yeah doesn't matter if she's a woman governor or not she's the governor and she's handling it yeah absolutely uh you have any exciting projects coming up you want to talk about we have about five minutes left we're getting some great comments thank you guys for the awards as well i'll be sharing half and half with my guest as usual wow um, yeah that's nice um does anybody have any questions about working in Japan or business culture in Japan. I think last time we talked, you talked about the concept of nemawashi. Now coming up to the Olympics, coming up to vaccinations for COVID, um, we are seeing certain key words being used over and over in media and in the government. So that's, that's kind of how you define nemawashi last time. Are you noticing any key no. phrases? No. Because I basically now people are coming out very clearly. They don't want the Olympics, right? Like they're having strikes and the doctors are saying no, thank you and all that. Right. That means the Nemawashi didn't work. Right. So all the Nemawashi that was going on to get the Olympics either postponed or canceled didn't work. So now people are actually coming out and saying, no, thank you. We don't want it. Right. I really don't think that's going to work either. I think they're going to try to figure out after listening to Hashimoto-san the other day, I really think they're going to figure out a way to do it safely. I hope they do. And, um, you know, it's, it's important to have this big event and sort of bring the world together. And I think if we can get the vaccinations in place and Suga-san is just going for it with the vaccinations, <laughs> you know, the, like this month and next month. And I mean, it's like, I, I knew that once Jap Japan started, it would be super fast. So let's see, let's see how what happens. So Veda is asking, um, can you explain nemawashi just very briefly? Literally, nemawashi is if you have a plant and the plant you want to plant, you want to change the pot. So you want to repot the plant. Okay, you have to put water around the root, right? And you have to do this to loosen it up so you can get it out. That's nemawashi is mawasu the ne the root. So what we say about this is that there's a lot of concepts, there's a lot of um, uh, embedded roots about thinking in Japan. For instance, um, you know, men are 80% of the uh, leaders in Japan. Like, let's say that was a that was a mindset. Okay. So what you do is you do nemawashi, you loosen up the root in order to incrementally loosen things up and change things. 
So Nimawashi is the background activity to make something happen. It's talking to the right people. So that's why nothing ever gets decided in a meeting in Japan. It's all decided、uh, behind the scenes during Nimawashi. And then a meeting is just where something is made, is confirmed as final. So, I'm, I'm sure you know this from experience working with a lot of businesses as well. And even at the university that I was working at, it would happen, right? You'd have the meeting with all the teachers. And then at, at the meeting, nothing would be decided concretely. But soon after the meeting, everyone would go around to different offices talking about what should we do. And then the decisions kind of made outside the meeting, but it, it was talked about in the meeting. It was very confusing. To me at first to, really to realize that system. So, one of the tricks I learned to successful business in Japan is just wait. Patience. Patience. You say what you think, and then four months later it happens miraculously. Veda <laughs>、yeah. uh, says, I'm putting Nemawashi in my HAPS notes. Haha, <laughs> I'm so nerdy. No, that's awesome. Great concept. I don't know if there would be an equivalent in English, like a one. It's a, it's a very good concept in business in Japanese, right? Somebody would know this. If there's something about、um, something the ground,、um, loosening the soil or loosening the ground, or, you know, we have to. I, I've heard something similar, but it's not used as widely. Yeah, awesome. Well, that is a great way to finish our talk. I think that was a, a perfect hour. Thank you so much, Ruth. It's wonderful、Thank、talking、you. to you. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Be safe. So, thanks everyone for joining and、uh, for commenting. It was great having you join us in this conversation.、Uh, if you write any questions or comments after, of course, Ruth and I will try to respond as well. So, thanks so much. Thank you, everybody, for the awards. You guys are very generous and、uh, look forward to. Talking again in a few months, Ruth, as things are changing so rapidly now in Japan. It'd be great to catch up again. Yeah, in about, a, in, in about four months, everything will be really interesting. Yeah, for sure.、Uh, thank you, Brett. That's awesome. Thanks so much, everyone.、Uh, tomorrow, 5 p.m., I'm talking with another、uh, company leader and founder, Jackie Steele.、Uh, she runs Enjoy Diversity. Uh, consulting group, and we'll be talking 5 p.m. tomorrow, Japan time. Thank you so much, Ruth. Have a great day, everyone. Take care. Bye. I hope you enjoyed the episode today. If you want to learn more about the work that I do, have a look at inboundambassador.com. You can also sponsor the work that I'm doing on the YouTube channel, Patreon, buy me a coffee. Coffee or haps. Have a great day.